Well, good morning, church. It is good to see you on this Christmas Eve morning. Merry Christmas. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my uh, joy to bring you the message this morning. If you are able, out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word, will you please stand as it is read this morning? Our scripture this morning comes from a few places in the early chapters of the Gospel of John. Looking at John 1, 1 through 18, let the end of John 1, 43 through, 50, 43 through 51, and then skipping ahead to John 3, John 3, 11 through 17. It's a longer passage. Hold out with me. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 1.43 The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now to John 3, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God 
stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we pray that as we have read your word and as it is now preached and heard, we pray that you would be glorified. Lord, we pray that your people would be built up, strengthened, edified, that we would see the gospel clearly this morning. You'd be penetrating hearts and minds by your spirit and transforming us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have been going through this uh, Advent series, the names of Jesus, we come this morning and looking at this very important one, looking at really two names that go together, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Son of God, Son of Man. Uh, we, were talk, we were joking as a staff this week about, you know, it would be fun if we had bingo cards for each of the preachers, and you can kind of knock, knock them off as we uh, hit our, our normal uh, things that we just kind of go to on a regular basis. I always go to C.S. Lewis. That's one of my, that'd be the center square for me. So I'm going to start it off with, we're just going to go C.S. Lewis right off the bat. From the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love this. This is my favorite. I've, I know I've used it before. You've heard me say it. We're going to do it again. It's the beginning, towards the beginning, Peter, Susan, and Lucy are walking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They're going to see Aslan. Aslan says Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the king of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This Advent season, we've been looking at the names of Jesus that we find throughout the Bible. We've looked at Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've looked at the name Emmanuel. We've looked at the name A Savior, Christ the Lord. But y'all, the potential danger here is that we look, if we only look at these names of Jesus, and only with a certain biased or limited viewpoint, with a rather complete, incomplete rather, understanding of them. We could come across we could come away with an inadequate, incomplete understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Now, of course, our our point in in all of these uh sermons and all of these lessons has been to dig in and to get a full understanding of each of these names of Jesus. But if on the surface, if you only get just this picture of of a tame Jesus, of a safe Jesus, of a Jesus who just comes to make our life better and make all of our dreams come true, or something like that, well, then we come here to our text this morning. And we come to these names of Jesus that we have before us this morning. On this Christmas Eve, this last Sunday of Advent, any such misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he has come to do, well, then 
if we understand right, son of God, son of man, if we dig right into John 1 and John 3, these early chapters of John's gospel, we can see what the Bible has to tell us and it will set us straight for sure. That Jesus is not safe. He's the king, but he is good. One of the key theological truths uh, that, that we need to understand, and you, you probably get this idea if you've been in the church for any length of time. You may not know this term, though, so maybe we can uh, uh, have a new theological idea. It's something we call the hypostatic union. All right? This is a key truth that states that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, fully divine and fully human. These titles in Scripture given to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Son of Man speak of course, to Jesus' divine and human natures. Back in 451 AD, a group of church leaders gathered together at the Council of Chalcedon. And one of their main reasons for gathering was to once again clarify against these false teachings about this very doctrine, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. About 125 years earlier at the Council of Nicaea, there was an issue that said Jesus was indeed fully man, but he was not fully, fully, fully God. There's a guy named Arius who kept saying, no, Jesus was a really, really important being. He was a really important creation, but he wasn't fully God equal with the Father. Uh, And there was a guy named St. Nicholas. He was real. Who walked right over to Arius and slapped him. (laughs) Now, I've been to a lot of session meetings. I've been to a lot of presbytery meetings, general assemblies. Uh, I've never seen physical assault, uh, thankfully. But Nicholas had had enough of Arius' blasphemy. He got in trouble for it. Um, but a hundred and something years later, now the opposite heresy is emerging. Yet, Yes, of course Jesus was fully God, but I don't think he was fully human. That's, that's not possible. And so the Council of Chalcedon in 451 came away with... Uh, to, ch- to seek to clarify this important teaching. And I'd like to read from you from their confession that they wrote. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in the Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the father as regards to his Godhead. And at the same time of one substance with us as regard to his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin as regard to his Godhead begotten of the father before all the ages. But yet as regards as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Mary, the Virgin, the God bearer, one and the same Christ, the Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature is being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creeds of the fathers have handed down to us. All right. I don't go through all that church history just because I'm a history buff and I love that stuff. I do. 
But I go through that because I think it's very important that we set the table properly, to set the stage as we dig into these critical names of God, Son of God, Son of Man. Now, you may be thinking right now, okay, I get it. Son of God, Son of Man. Son of God refers to Jesus' divine nature. Son of Man refers to Jesus' human nature. I get it. End of sermon. Amen. Let's go have lunch. (laughs) We can end there. We can end there. We can do it. I want to dig through a little bit. If we come to that conclusion, you have reached the right theological conclusion, but you're not quite reaching it the right way. There's a meme going around, and I can't verify if it's real, but it's from a Windows XP warning that said, task failed successfully. And I think that could apply here. I'm a Mac guy. I never got past Windows 95. I didn't know if this is actually real. I couldn't verify it. If it is, if it's true, please let me know. If it's not, let me know. But we want to make sure we understand what Scripture is saying and how Scripture is saying it and coming to the right conclusions in the right way. I think that's important. There's so much to both of these titles, Son of God and Son of Man, especially as we dig into their Old Testament roots. I want to look this morning at the Son of God, I want to look at the Son of Man, and I want to look, importantly, at the Son for us. So the Son of God. We get that confession from Nathaniel at the end of John 1, in John 1, where he says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now what Nathaniel meant probably was great, significant, but he didn't understand it fully. In reality, throughout history, that title, Son of God, has been used in a variety of ways. Rulers have claimed that title to show that they had some kind of special relationship with their God or deity. This was true in ancient China. This was true with Alexander the Great in ancient Greece. This was true in medieval Japan. And even in Scripture, the title, Son of God, is used in a couple of different ways. D.A. Carson points out that actually there are seven different ways that Scripture uses that title, Son of God, from being created by God to being chosen by God as his people as a whole to being chosen by God for a specific task or role like a judge or a king or prophet. And this is probably the way that Nathaniel was thinking of. Okay, you're the Son of God as in you are the man who has been chosen by God for this special task of being the Messiah being the one who's going to kick these nasty, ugly Romans out of town and restore the throne of David to the physical nation kingdom of Israel here in Jerusalem. Now, Nathaniel was so right about so much of his assessment, yet missed the mark so much too. Nothing in his confession is technically incorrect, but it's just short. It's so limited Nathaniel believes, actually he believes too much and too little about this kingship of Jesus. He believes too much because he believes that this son and king would be, uh, um, that would, would, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. He believes too much, make sure I get these right, these are backwards, because he believes that this man, Jesus, is going to actually kick the Romans out. But of course, Jesus doesn't kick the Romans out. He's crucified by the Romans. He believes too little Because he doesn't really understand what these terms, son of God and king of Israel, really mean. John unfolds this for us as we go through John's gospel. In John 5, it says this, where uh, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Something was happening throughout Jesus' ministry that the Jewish leaders could not tolerate. He was teaching that his sonship was distinct and unique from any other sonship of God. He was teaching that when he claimed that title, Son of God, that it was because he was divine, equal with God. This was blasphemous. Unless, of course, it's true. And then it escalates. In John 8, we get the confrontation where the Jews threaten to uh, stone Jesus because he says, truly, I am, claiming that Yahweh title, that divine name for God for himself. In John 10, it says that it, they tell Jesus, it is not good, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And then finally, in John 19, where the Jewish authorities have brought Jesus before the Roman government to crucify him, they made this connection of blasphemy to Jesus claiming that title, Son of God. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. This title, Son of God, is much more than simply a, a chosen instrument of God, a human Messiah. He was claiming divinity truly so this greater the title the son of god came in jesus's life and ministry the more it carried him to his death and this was intentional this was the divine plan that jesus would come to be our messiah to conquer death to conquer sin through death through his death this is the way that he loved us the more clearly Jesus revealed the truth of his name, Son of God. Definite article, the, capital S, Son. The more it was clear and the more sure it was his path to the cross. It's been said that the shadow of, cro the shadow of the cross looms over the manger. When you understand that, you understand Christmas. We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. We celebrate what we read there in Isaiah 9, which we read a few weeks ago. A child is born, a son is given. But this child was born, this son was given to accomplish the work of redemption of his people. His birth and his death were all one work. The uh, Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is actually helpful. Question 27. What did Christ's humiliation consist of? Christ's humiliation consisted of being born in a low condition, living under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, undergoing the wrath of God and the cursed death on a cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Son of God in its fullness, this title, this name is truly unique to our Savior Jesus Christ. He's the only one who, as the Nicene Creed says, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This exalted great title, Son of God. So We get that one. Let's look at the second title, though, the Son of Man. Of all the names and all the titles of Jesus throughout the Scriptures, this is the one that Jesus uses for himself the most. 
This is his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. We see Jesus use this title to speak, speak of himself both in John 151, which we just read, and John 3, 13 and 14. But in calling himself Son of Man, Jesus wasn't just making a declaration that, listen, I'm a human, I'm a person just like y'all. Logically, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Jesus lived among them. He was there throughout all of his teaching and even his miracles, through the calling of disciples, through making enemies with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. No one looked at Jesus during that time and said, I don't think he's a human. He's standing right there. Nah, but I don't think he's really a person. That was never a question, right? So Jesus was not using this title, Son of Man, as saying, listen, I'm a human. I just want to assure you, I'm a person. I'm a man just like y'all. While there is much about Jesus' ministry and his life on earth that was indeed controversial, that caused issues with the Jewish authorities, with the Roman authorities, this was not one of them. His humanity was never a question or an issue. See, this title doesn't merely speak to his humanity, but this title speaks to his exaltedness, which is why uh, Adam read that passage from Daniel for us earlier. Come back with me. Look at Daniel again. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says again, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom And all the people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Y'all, this title, Son of Man, speaks of the power and the authority and the majesty of Jesus. This title is used over 80 times in the Gospels, and only Jesus uses it to refer to himself. This is a language of kingship and glory and sovereignty. But it has a different ring, of course, than Son of God. It sounds a little more lowly and ordinary. So when Jesus uses it, his claims to his kingship and to his glory and to his sovereignty don't sound so overt. And I believe this is intentional. As he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was even in his own title, in his own name. When he called himself the Son of Man, he was saying, if you understand what I'm saying by that, understand it. If you don't, that's okay. Because Jesus knew he was headed to the cross, but he knew that he had a path to take to get there. And he revealed himself at the right time in the right ways. By using Son of Man, Jesus is indeed, yes, affirming his human nature for sure, but he's not saying that he's just a regular guy like you and me. Y'all, politicians will often do this. They'll want to make themselves seem as though they're just regular people, just like you, right? They want to, as, as the song says, seem approachable, like you could grab a beer with them. Jesus was not doing that. He was not trying to come down to our level, like, I'm just like y'all, don't know, don't worry about it. This vision of Dan, uh, that Daniel has in Daniel 7, he sees this one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is this divine figure given the eternal kingdom, given worship, authority, nations, tribes, people. Yeah, we see this in John himself, John the Apostle, the same John who wrote this gospel of John that we just read from this morning, who also wrote the book of Revelation. The same John that spent three years 
consistently with Jesus as his disciple. The same John who claims and uses that title, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. When he sees Jesus in Revelation, he doesn't pull a buddy the elf. I know him. I know him. He doesn't come up to Jesus and give him a big hug. He doesn't dap him up. Instead, we see in John 1, 7, I mean in Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The Son of Man is great and glorious and exalted above all others. The one who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and everything that we read about in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. This is who the Son of Man is. Not just an ordinary person, just like everybody else. Human, yes, absolutely, fully human, like us in every respect, but exalted and glorious. But now look at in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Look at how Jesus uses that title, Son of Man, for himself and what must happen to him. And that brings us to the third point this morning. This is the Son of us. In John 3, 14, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness. This is a reference to Numbers. Numbers 21. Which, Numbers is one of those books that unless you're doing a Bible reading plan, Bible in a year, or Bible in a couple of years, you're probably not just going to go to Numbers just because. It's a good book though. Good to read through it. We see this, and we see this story told us in Numbers 21. The people of God in the wilderness, God has freed them from captivity, freed them from slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, out of captivity in Egypt, and He's taking them to the Promised Land. But they keep grumbling, they keep complaining, and once again, here in Numbers 21, they are doing that very thing. Said, "Why did you bring us out to the wilderness to die?" And so God sends a discipline, a punishment, a judgment against His people. He sends poisonous serpents, venomous serpents, technically, into fiery serpents into the camp. And they are biting people, and people are dying. And so now they cry out, Lord, we're sorry. (laughs) We've sinned against you. And so God has Moses craft this bronze, fiery serpent on a pole and lift it up in the midst of the camp. And God says, anyone who is bitten may look to this serpent and be healed and live. God's people could not save themselves. If you were bitten by a snake out in the desert, out in the wilderness, you didn't have the antivenom, you didn't have the necessary medical training to heal yourself, the only way you could be healed is to look in faith at the healing provided, at the life provided by God himself. What Jesus is saying In John chapter 3, he's saying the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, that's about me. The son of man must be lifted up. Exalted, yes, the son of man will be exalted. But first, he will be lifted up on the cross. Son of man will be lifted up to bear our burden, to bear our death, to bear our sickness, our iniquity. 
to be, as we've talked about, as we've been going through Hebrews over the past several weeks before this Advent series, to be our propitiation for our sin, to take the punishment for our sin, to defeat death, to bring us back to God. And after he's lifted up in that humiliation, lifted up for our salvation, he's then lifted up in great exaltation. Let's go back to the catechism. Question 27 was about Jesus' humiliation. Question 28 is about his exaltation. What does Christ's exaltation consist of? Christ's exaltation consists of his rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world on the last day. It's because the Son of God, because the Son of Man has come for us, come to be lifted up for us as that serpent in the wilderness so that we may live, so that we may have life. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Y'all, this Advent season, as we consider Jesus, as we contemplate the Son of God, the Son of Man, make sure that you see Him dying to give you eternal life. That you are looking to Christ as your only salvation. Looking to Him as the only means by which your sin can be made right. The only means by which you can be made right with God. The only means of coming back to the Father. The only means of eternal life. And therefore we see Him as glorious. Advent Christmas is the beautiful, wonderful truth that all of the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the honor that we read about in Revelation and in Daniel of the Son of Man, all the glory of the Son of God, all of that is found in a baby sleeping in a manger. That this great, glorious, exalted God has come to us. As the Christmas carol says, mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more shall die. I opened with C.S. Lewis. Let me close with C.S. Lewis. I read from the first book. Let me read from the last book, The Last Battle. Queen Lucy says this, once in our world, A stable had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. This is the miracle of Christmas. This is the miracle that we celebrate that Christ has come to us. God has come to us. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Emmanuel with us. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that as we contemplate the nature and truth of who our Savior is, Lord, our brains cannot comprehend it. 
Our minds cannot fathom the depths of who you are. That Jesus, Son of God, fully God, fully divine, and Son of man, human, fully man, but exalted, glorious. Lord, you have come to us, born in a manger, born lowly and humble, so that you might save us that you might redeem us and bring us back. You come on this rescue mission, leaving your home to come and to grab us and to bring us back to yourself, to restore us to where we were in the beginning, this relationship we have with the Father, your people, your bride. We pray that this Christmas we would see that all the more clearly. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know the truth of who you are, the truth of the work that you have come to do for us, of your salvation to bring us back to yourself through your death and resurrection, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grab a hold of their heart even now. Lord, may you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.